Hey, welcome to the Central Westland Church Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for downloading and thank you for listening. We hope that today you find God's Word to be encouraging, challenging, and inspiring your life today. We would love to connect with you through our Facebook page and Instagram page. All you got to do is look on Facebook or Instagram and search for Central Westland Church. Please know that we love you, we're praying for you, and we hope you enjoy this week's message. All right, so here's the deal. I'm not quite sure how much power this mic has, so if it goes out, just act like it's fine. I will grab a different mic. Also, just so you all know, I do not get nervous singing, but I get so nervous talking. So if I'm stumbling over my words, you just smile and keep nodding your head like I'm saying everything right, okay? All right, so this morning, I am choosing to talk about the book of Job, and that's always a happy talk. But... Um, most of the time we like to relate to Job. Makes us feel pretty good. You know, I'm suffering, but, you know, me and, good, me and God, we're doing good. But um, about a year ago, I was reading through the book of Job, and I just started underlining things that the friends were saying that I've probably said to people myself. Underlining things that the friends were saying that I've definitely heard people say to people suffering in the church. And I was like, ugh, because we all know what happens at the end of the book of Job, God's not too thrilled with the comforting styles of Job's friends. So there's got to be an answer. So I started looking to the book of Job for how we should be comforting our friends, and it wasn't there. I was kind of frustrated. And then it kind of went off like a light bulb, and I was like, how does Jesus comfort people? So then I started comparing how Jesus is comforting people versus how Job's friends are comforting people. And that is what I'm sharing with you this morning. What we, the church, share in common with Job's friends, and then Jesus' way of comforting people. And I do want to just preface all this to say, Job's friends were not bad people. A lot of what they were saying was not wrong. It just wasn't the right time. It it didn't quite hit. It was full of half-truths. But I really genuinely believe they cared about Job, and I think that when we say these things, we do genuinely want to help. So let's look at a better way of doing things. Um, I had tons of notes on this, and I didn't have time to cover it all. Um, So there will be a podcast this week talking about some more specifics about friends Job, or Job's friends, (laughs) Um, and kind of some of the half-truths they were saying that we still struggle with. So um, that will be out on the podcast this week, but we are not covering that today. We are simply talking about some missteps they took and um, Jesus' way. So the first friend we come across is Eliphaz. And since he is the first to talk, it's safe to assume he's the oldest. Um, He is from a town that is literally known for their wisdom. So... When he's talking, everybody's listening because this is supposed to be a pretty wise guy. And he also talks the most out of Job's friends. He has three whole chapters. And he's actually the nicest of the three friends. So that's good. We start out nice. Um, He begins his advice to Job in chapter 4. So 
We don't have time to read all of it because it's very long. So we're just going to get the gist of what he's saying in Job 4, verses 7 through 9. He says, Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Who, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. And then in chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, he says, Why has your heart carried you away, and why do your eyes flash, so that you vent your rage against God and pour out such words from your mouth? So Eliphaz says that Job's problem is, your unrighteousness and disrespect for God has gotten you in this mess. So he hints at that. He doesn't outright say it, but he hints by saying, Who being innocent has ever perished? And, um, And then we see in chapter 15... Why has your heart carried you away? Why are you venting your rage against God? So he's saying your anger and your unrighteousness, it's what's got us here. But, um, you know, that's easy to say. It's a sow and reap situation. But we know from the beginning of Job that that was not the case for Job. Eliphaz was um, not completely educated on what was going on. And his accusation of Job disrespecting God is kind of saying, like, if you ask, if you question God's goodness, I know you're really suffering and you're not seeing God's goodness right now, but because you're questioning it, you're disrespecting God, and so I think you deserve what you're getting. And he offers his solution to Job in chapters 5 and then um, verses 8 through 9, and then he continues it into verses 18 through 26. And he says, but if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hand also heals. From six calamities he will rescue you. In seven, no harm will touch you. In famine, he will deliver you from death and in battle from the stroke of the sword. You will be protected from the lash of the tongue and need no fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine And need not fear the wild animals, for you will have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure. You will take stock of your property and find nothing missing. You will know that your children will be many. Your descendants will be grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like sheaves gathered in season. So, what is Eliphaz saying? Appeal to God. He's just, he's good, and he will take care of all of this. You just need to tell God, you're wrong, and then... Everything is soft. He's made God a machine. You put in righteousness, you get out righteousness. You put in evil, you get out evil. So obviously you have put in some evil. But if you apologize, everything will be right again. So we notice that what Eliphaz says of God isn't untrue. God is a God of miracles. He does bless his people. He is a healer. And he also sometimes does allow suffering to come to us because of our own individual sin. And bringing our failures before God is a good thing to do. But those truths did not helpfully speak into Job's suffering. They didn't speak life, hope, or new understanding into what he was going through. Um, The commentary that I just love by Longman and Garland, they put it this way. What is absolutely true is misapplied. The sick room is not the place for theological strictures that may turn out to do more harm than good. Great truths misapplied only hurt more those who are already hurting. So, what's the misstep that Eliphaz makes? 
truth does not always mean helpful. And I think the church does that too. How many times do we see this? You know, someone comes to you and they, or comes to someone and says, my sister, she just died unexpectedly. She was 25 years old. We didn't see it coming. And I am struggling. And we say, well, God is good and good is coming. He can, he'll turn this to good. Well, yes, God is absolutely good. And Romans 8 says God can change things and, or turn our circumstances and use everything for good. That is completely true. But that doesn't speak life into that situation. That causes confusion because why is a good God taking my sister? Why is this happening? If This is not good. And that's fair to say. This is not good. And so while we may have truth that speaks to God's goodness, sometimes that truth doesn't help. We also, how about the person who's dying of cancer and they tell you they only have a a month left to live and they know they're dying. They know and they're scared. And you go, well, God can heal anything. He'll heal you. It's true. God can heal anything. But God doesn't always. Because our home's not here. If we didn't die, we'd never go home. And so while it's scary, God doesn't heal everything because there is a time for death. So when we tell someone that God is definitely going to heal them, when we speak that into their life and then it doesn't happen, we cause confusion because now God isn't doing what God can do. He's not moving in my life. What's wrong? Sometimes the answer is you might die, but you're going to be with God. And It's scary, and I'm going to be here for you this whole time. And God can heal, but he might not. So, do we see this principle of only speaking the truth when it's helpful, life-giving, and or gives new understanding to the suffering person in Jesus' ministry? Absolutely. Most people know the story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery, and we find that in John 8, 2 through 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't say much in this story. And he could have spoken a lot of truth to this woman. He could have told this woman, heaven is not for adulterers. You have sinned. You're going to hell. He could have told her, the law of Moses says we need to kill you. Because that was also true. He could have spoken all this truth, but instead he says, go now and leave your life of sin. There's truth in that too. That is what God wants for her. He wanted her to leave that life of sin. He spoke truth to her that gave her hope, that told her this was not the end. She could get up and go. She could leave her suffering. 
He gave her words that were firm and lovingly warned her of the dangerous situation she was in and then encouraged her to move forward from it. So, what can we learn from Eliphaz and Jesus? Just because it's true doesn't mean it's helpful. Speaks truth that brings hope, life, and comfort, not condemnation or confusion. Little side note, though. There are people that do need that truth because they are perpetual sufferers. And these are the people that are victims, and they are just sitting in their suffering all the time. And sometimes we do have to speak some harsh truth because they've been there for a long time. I'm talking about the person who is genuinely suffering. And we don't start <laughs> with, like, all the truth we know. Um, the next friend that speaks is Bildad. Bildad is a non-Hebrew name, and because he's second, he's probably the second oldest. Um, he had similar issues with Job as Eliphaz. So we find that in Job 8.3, he says, Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? And then in 18.5-11, on the screens, this next portion is in NIV, but I'm going to read the message. Here's the rule. The light of the wicked is put out. Their flames die down and is extinguished. Their house goes dark. Every lamp in the place goes out. Their strong strides weaken, falter. They stumble into their own traps. They get all tangled up in their own red tape. Their feet are grabbed and caught, their necks in a noose. They trip on ropes they've hidden and fall into pits they've dug themselves. So Bildad believes Job's problem is God is just, so what's happening to you is fair, and you did it to yourself. He says that very clearly in verse 8-3 that God is just. And then as he goes forward, it's a little less straightforward, but he's saying people stumble into their own traps. They get all tangled up in what they've already done. So his reaction to suffering is you deserve it. His solution to Job's problem, repent, because if you were blameless, God would not be doing this to you. And I'm, that solution starts out decently. Repent. It's good advice. But it doesn't apply to Job. But then it takes a turn. His whole solution rests in Job living a righteous life. If you live righteously, you receive good things. But as we know, Job was righteous. Bildad's whole speech is characterized by a lack of compassion about Job's pain. He's an example of a proud person trying to help a situation they do not fully understand. And he listens, but he doesn't take those words to heart. He even twists the knife in Job 8.4, and he talks about how Job's kids all died, and it was probably because they were evil, and the same thing was happening to Job. And clearly, he did not value compassion. And I believe we see this in the church as well. Because I don't think Bildad was a bad person. Bildad had traveled a ways to sit with Job in his pain. So he obviously was a good enough friend to come. But I think Bildad was so focused on Job's problem and solving it, they didn't care about the person of Job. He didn't care about the pain that Job was going through. Jesus' comforting style was not like that. It was quite opposite of Bildad's. He always responded to those suffering and mourning with compassion. In fact, his whole ministry 
was rooted in compassion. Matthew 9, 35 through 36 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word Matthew uses for compassion is so much deeper than our word. It doesn't even, it's not even equivalent to what we talk about. His compassion is so deep, so emotional. Spurgeon says, um, he explains that emotional response. He says, I suppose that when our Savior looked upon certain sights, those who watched him closely perceived that his internal agitation was very great. His emotions were very deep. And then his face betrayed it. His eyes gushed like founts with tears, and you saw that his big heart was ready to burst with pity for the sorrow upon which his eyes were gazing. He was moved with compassion. His whole nature was agitated with commiseration for the sufferers before him. Jesus was not harsh. He wasn't harsh because he was emotionally broken for people who were suffering. And all his words came from a place of genuine sympathy. And I put a page where it doesn't belong. Um... Jesus' great compassion for people is what led him to the cross. But compassion alone is not enough. Jesus always coupled that compassion with hope. In Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in John 16, 33, he says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He didn't just offer compassion. He also offered hope of himself. His hope was not based on what you did. His hope wasn't based on what the sufferer had done. His hope was based on him. He wasn't looking for retribution or justice in this life. He was looking to eternity with the Father, and that's where his justice was found. But Bildad was looking for it right here, and he didn't fully understand the second thing built out in the church have in common is relying on traditions and or good-sounding things. If you go through and read all of Bildad's speeches, he talks a lot about what the ancestors and the traditions have said in the past. Um, but they weren't, they sounded really good, but not all of them were necessarily theologically sound. How many times do we repeat things to people who are hurting because they sound good? I've got a few. Everything happens for a reason. God needed them more than you did. God won't give you more than you can handle. I would be willing to bet that a lot of people think those are Bible verses, but they're not. They are statements that we have been traditionally speaking that have now just become part of our culture. We just say it. We've fallen into the trap that Bildad fell into of trusting tradition as truth. And I am not saying that these things are bad or good. That's not the conversation. I'm saying make sure you know if you're speaking truth or not into a situation. And don't just rely on what's been said. How did Jesus feel about people repeating traditions as truth? Not good. Matthew um, 15 um, tells us a story about Jesus and some Pharisees. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition, there's that word, of the elders, they don't wash their hands before they eat? 
Jesus replied and said, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? He wasn't concerned with traditions. He wasn't concerned with what sounded good. He was concerned with what God had said. He was concerned with truth. So what can we take away from Bildad and Jesus? First, speak with compassion and direct people who are suffering to eternity. And second, make sure your words are credible, not just something good you've heard. Zophar is the third and last friend, and he's the youngest and seemingly the most immature. His words are all just spoken from a place of emotion. He's not weighing them. He's just speaking them. So we see his, his take on Job's problem and solution in Job 11. So the problem is found in verses 4 through 9. He says, You say to God, My beliefs are flawless, and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sins. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the earth. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Job is claiming to be righteous. And Zophar points that out. And he also points out that he seems to believe he's pretty wise. And then he goes even further to insinuate that because of Job's obvious sinfulness because of his situation, he doesn't really know God. My study Bible um, put it that Zophar was highlighting an implicit connection between moral standing and knowledge of God. So in Zophar's mind, Job's problem was pride and your immorality has blinded you to your sin and God and you deserve so much worse. And Zophar is not shy at letting Job know that's how he feels. <laughs> so what is Zophar's solution? We find that in verses 13 through 19. Again, this is an NIV on the screen, but I'm going to read the message. Still, if you set your heart on God and reach out to him, if you scrub your hands of sin and refuse to entertain evil in your home, you'll be able to face the world unashamed and keep a firm grip on life, guiltless and fearless. You'll forget your troubles. They'll be like old faded photographs. Your world will be washed in sunshine, every shadow dispersed by dawn, full of hope. You'll relax, confident again. You'll look around, sit back, and take it easy. Expansive, without a care in the world, you'll be hunted out by many for your blessings. So far, solution, seek God, reach out to him, and then your life will be easy again. He implies that by simply turning back to God, Job would not suffer anymore. All this would immediately disappear, and he would be completely free of anxiety and pain. But that's not how life works. Life is not that simple. Um, Longman and Garland, they write, Zophar has reduced the solution of this complex human problem to a simplistic formula. Every pain has a sin behind it. He thinks if he guilts Job into getting rid of all his sin, he will also get rid of all of his pain. If this were true, then judge, judging people who were suffering would be a pretty good response. I mean, you could just pick out all the things they were doing wrong, and then they'd apologize for them, and then everything would get better. But like I said, that's not how it works. And we know that. I think most of us would know that. But we, there still seems to be some judgment whenever we are with people who are suffering in the church. And 
believe that calling out sin will automatically solve people's pain, which leads to the two problems so far in the church share when dealing with suffering, and that's both of us can be judgmental, and both of us have wrong beliefs that repentance is an automatic solution. The first of these issues, judgment, does not help suffering. How many times have you heard someone say, well, you deserve worse? I heard it a lot in theology school, honestly. We talked a lot about how the human people were all, you know, we're all bad, and so we deserve worse. So if you're going through a tough time, just remember, it could be worse. That is not helpful. How does it being worse make what I'm going through right now better? It doesn't. Jesus did not judge and condemn people while he was comforting them, or ever, with the condemning. But. And he had all rights to do it. He was the one who had all authority to give them what they deserved. But he did not. He made it very clear in John 3.17 that his purpose was not to condemn the world, but to save it. So what did he offer instead? Comfort. Matthew 5.4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There are times when judgment is appropriate. I do want to put that um, out there. Paul tells the church, it is our job to judge people within the church with unrepentant sin. Only within the church. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. But he does not tell us to go up and start judging people who are going through suffering. That is not the right time or the place. Let's hold judgment and condemnation whenever we are sitting with the people who are suffering and instead give comfort like Jesus. The second thing both Zophar and many in the church struggle with is this belief that repentance or calling upon God always leads to a change in our circumstances. Just because you're right with God does not mean your life is going to go great. Nor does asking for God's intervention guarantee that he's going to do what you ask him to do. And unrepentant sin doesn't always cause the problem in your life. How do we know this? Jesus. <laughs> he lived the perfect life, but his life was full of suffering. He was known as the suffering servant. His suffering and pain on the cross was so bad that the mere thought of it beforehand caused him to sweat blood. Jesus suffered. He drew close to God, which was Zophar's suggestion, and called upon him to change his circumstances, yet God did not. God still required Jesus to go to the cross and die. So if Jesus' circumstances did not change when he asked God to change them, why do we believe that ours always will? There remains the fact that Jesus was perfect, but he suffered because of the sin he took on from us. So it's kind of a loophole to be like, well, suffering still came from sin, but John 9, 1 through 3, Jesus clears that up. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Sometimes God allows suffering because through that suffering, his grace and power can be on display. 
The cross is the ultimate picture of unjust suffering, but it's also the epitome of God's power and grace at work. So what can we learn from Jesus in so far? Comfort. Not judgment should be our response to suffering. And we should all seek to have a broader view of suffering. It is not simply a reaction of sin, but it's often a vessel for God's power. So, as we ponder the ways of Jesus and the ways of Job's friends, I hope we all realize his friends were partially right. Repentance is part of the answer to suffering. But the reasoning of their response was wrong. The purpose of repentance is not to make the suffering disappear, and repentance alone does not bring comfort. Drawing near to God is also part of it. What did Jesus do when he was suffering? He went to his Father in prayer. But they were still missing something. And what were they missing? I believe Job, when he was sitting there, if Jesus would have been sitting there with him, Jesus would have told him about himself. They were missing Jesus. They were missing the gospel. The gospel fully responds to those who need comforting. The gospel says, yes, repent and sin no more. But it also says, you are loved. God deemed you worthy when Jesus died on the cross. Your suffering is not in vain. God will use it for good. You are God's child, and he intends good for you. You are not forsaken no matter how ugly your life looks. Your sins have no power here. They will not condemn you because they were nailed to the cross with Jesus. And finally it says, I see you are in pain and my heart is broken for you. And I will sit here without judgment and I will bring hope, compassion, and love. So that's what Jesus would have said to Job. And that's what he says to your broken friend. And that's what he says to you. So, How do we be like Jesus when we encounter suffering? Um, The band can come on up. We speak, or we remember that not all truth is helpful. We speak with compassion and hope. We do not simply repeat traditional partial truths. We comfort without condemnation and judgment. We know that suffering is not always the sufferer's fault, and asking God will not always make it go away. But we also realize suffering can be God's opportunity to show his power and grace. And finally, and most importantly, we respond with the gospel. We remember what Jesus has done for us, and we remember and remind people that are suffering what Jesus has done for them. We should all encourage each other to live in the confidence of the gospel. So this morning, let's try to be more like Jesus. When we come across someone who is suffering, who is hurting, let's not act like the friends. We might have a lot of good things to say, but they might not apply. But what does apply is how Jesus would respond. So this is not to say we're doing everything wrong because we've all done it, but it's to point to a better way. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for teaching us how to be more like you. God, and I pray that we will all seek to be more like you. And we thank you that you are here with us through our suffering. And you are such a good comforter, such a good friend that sits with us through these things. And God, we also thank you for the solution to our suffering, which is you. And we love you and we praise you. 
in Jesus' name.